Hello, everybody. I'm Ann Louise Gittleman, your hostess for the First Lady of Nutrition podcast, and it's my great pleasure today to welcome the co-author of the blockbuster book, Plague of Corruption. I'm with Kent Heckenlively today. He is a lawyer. He is a founding editor of The Age of Autism. He's also a science teacher, so he knows what to say and he knows what to write. Good to have you with me, doctor. May I call you doctor? <laughs> I, I'm not a doctor. I'm a doctor of law, but doctor, well, well, you, you can call me a counselor, I guess. Counselor, it's a pleasure to be with you today. Thanks so much. Now, my first question to you is, how would you negate any of the negative Snopes comments that are coming out about Dr. Judy Mikovits and her book, and her book, which is co-authored with you, Plague of Corruption? Well, you know, the interesting thing about Snopes is when you do some investigating on them, uh, you find some very intriguing things. So. I encourage all your listeners to type in Snopes, Hookers, and Daily Mail, and you'll find an article from, I think, 2016, about how the founder stole money from his wife to pay prostitutes, and then divorced his wife, married one of the prostitutes, and then a second prostitute is now assisting him in running Snopes. So I, uh, you know, I, I hate to say that they went from being actual prostitutes to corporate prostitutes. Oh my gosh. But, but I, I don't think that's really a stretch. And so, uh, you know, some people have said like, oh, are, are you insulting prostitutes? And I said, no, I'm not really insulting prostitutes. I, I'm just saying, if you, you're going to tell me that somebody's a fact checker, tell me they've got some Ivy League credential or something, uh, you know, in their academic career, not that they were a former hooker. So... Uh, Snopes just seems to be terrible. It's, it's not run by journalists. It's, you know, basically a guy and his new hooker wife and hooker girlfriend, I guess, sitting in some house in the Central Valley. So I, I really don't put much, you know, credibility in, in Snopes and, and I encourage uh, nobody else to either. Please, please, people, use better sources. I mean, Facebook even, you know, for a time used them and Facebook got rid of them because even as bad as Facebook is, they realized that uh, Snopes was not really a credible source. And what about Wikipedia? What's that? Wikipedia. Can you say the same for Wikipedia? <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> I, all I can say is, you know, as a middle school science teacher, I we often go and get uh, talks. We often get talks from the librarian about how to research sources. And the first thing they say is, do not use Wikipedia. And so if, uh, you know, middle school librarians are telling people not to use Wikipedia, that's probably a good recommendation for the rest of your life. So then my question to you is this, and thank you for clearing up all the misconceptions and negativity that's emanating from both Wikipedia and Snopes, but why did you of all people agree to co-author Judy Mikovits' book, Plague, and now her new blockbuster, Plague of Corruption? What, is, what were the motivations for you to get her story out? Well, you know, so I've been an autism activist since about 2012, after I saw my son, uh, know, have a very bad reaction to a vaccine. And we, luckily, we were able to get him on the gluten casein free diet and we got him back. My daughter um, has not come back from autism. She's still very severely affected. And so what I started seeing was I started seeing this pattern of corruption, uh, specifically when I investigated the case of Andy Wakefield. I just saw that, you know, blatant lies were being told about him and his research and what it found. And, you know, when you go back to the original Lancet article, 
what you find is that, you know, he, he did a case report of, you know, approximately 11 uh, children whose nine of whose parents said that the changes happened after vaccination. They, they also reported um, uh, changes in their gastrointestinal function. Uh, he scoped them, he saw changes, he saw some inflammation, which was, which was um, uh, unique. And he was able to take biopsies and found the measles strain of the virus in that. And the attack against Andy Wakefield was just overwhelming and, and, and really not honest and based in science. And you know, with my training as an attorney, uh, you know, I weigh evidence and I'm not one of these, I, just by training, um, what you always learn as an attorney is there are two sides to every issue. And, you know, if you want to be an effective advocate, you really have to know both sides. And so when Judy Mikovits came on the scene, really for me in 2010, uh, because in, in late 2009, she published an article in the journal Science, uh, which showed this newly discovered retrovirus was linked to chronic fatigue syndrome. It was a retrovirus that actually came from mice. And she started making some really interesting observations because she's an HIV researcher and what she, uh, her research in HIV showed, you know, okay, well, this virus can be passed down from mother to child, okay? And there's a question of sexual transmission, obviously, with HIV. And so, um, in addition to looking at women with chronic fatigue syndrome, she was also looking at the families, family association studies. And so she was finding that they, um, there was a high number of women with chronic fatigue syndrome who had children with autism. So she did a relatively small test of uh, 17 of these children and found evidence of the virus in 14 of them. So about an 85% ratio. And that really got me interested because then what she did was she fell back on her HIV uh, research because you can go to the websites, you know, UCSF, University of California, San Francisco, uh, HIV uh, pages as I did in writing the first book and find that um, if a woman who has HIV um, is pregnant and is getting ready to give birth, one of the first things that they will do is that they will give, um, uh, when the child is born, is they'll give that child antiretrovirals uh, prior to any vaccination because the vaccination itself will stimulate the B and T cells of the immune system, which is where the uh, virus likes to hide. So, you know, basic biology in HIV is this virus hides out in the cells of the immune system. So any stimulation of the immune system carries with it the risk that it might develop into uh, full-blown AIDS. And so Dr. Mikovits theorized that, hey, maybe this is something similar to what parents are seeing in autism. Maybe the children are born uh, with a, a, a virus, a retrovirus, that's passed down from mother to child, and the act of vaccination is stimulating that virus and it's replicating out of control and causing autism. So, you know, she's just really following standard practice and, and uh, you know, a logical line of progression. And, you know, I immediately knew, given what had happened to Andy Wakefield, that she was trespassing on dangerous territory. And mm. um, so I, I called her up in probably February of, or March of 2010, asked to interview her and, and she uh, generously gave me her time. And within an hour of my talking to her, I just thought to myself, wow, this is such a brave woman who's talking to me. She's not shading any of her comments. And you know, I, I kind of immediately felt protective of her. I, I thought like, 
she doesn't know the storm that's about to break on her mm. because she's just following the science. And so um, in May of 2010, we were both at Autism uh, One in Chicago. We had dinner along with Hillary Johnson, the Rolling Stone reporter, who's done a great job covering chronic fatigue syndrome. And, you know, I told her there, Judy, you know, they're going to come after you. You don't understand this. And, you know, at the time she was, you know, disputing me and she said, no, nah, look, I, I've got really great um, political support. Senator Harry Reid, uh, the Senate majority leader at that time is on our side. He's a good, uh -huh. he's a good friend of the family um, who's sponsoring this research at the University of Nevada. Um, I've got great scientific uh, support. You know, her team was actually composed of scientists from the Cleveland Clinic and the National Cancer Institute and in their institute in Nevada. So, and I said, you know, I, sorry, I don't care. Uh, you're going to get in trouble. And, and lo and behold, she did. And, uh, you know, I think it was uh, a period of disillusionment for her where, you know, charges were brought against her. Um, nothing, you know, she never saw the inside of a courtroom to actually have her case adjudicated. Um, she ended up spending probably $500,000 of her own money trying to get her day in court. The, the claim, her own claim was put under seal by the state of Nevada for several years. Uh, she wasn't allowed to speak um, about this, not allowed to go on social media. Um, and so I just thought, uh, you know, I'd said to her, look, I think the only way to get your story out there is, is to write some books. Because I, I said, unfortunately, um, I think that's one of the last actual freedoms we have in the world, uh, we have in the United States today, is they really haven't started the book burnings yet. Um, they, they will keep people like me off of the mainstream media, or if they do allow us, they, they will attack us so quickly and not allow us to respond. I, I've seen what's happened to Andy Wakefield when he goes on TV. So I said, you know, look, um, everybody's going to demand evidence. Um, best thing to do is write a book. You know, our first book, Plague, um, has been a consistent bestseller since 2014. It's usually topping the virology section or it's number two or three. Um, it's got you know, probably over 550 footnotes in it. Um, uh, and then our book, Plague Corruption, you know, a lot of people said like, wow, it's so sciencey. It, it's actually listed as an e-textbook. So you're going to highlight things. And so, uh, you know, people will go like, oh, you got too much science in it. It's, it's hard to understand. You know, can you write something a little bit <laughs> easier? So, um, you know, we wrote Plague of Corruption to kind of the further adventures of Dr. Judy. Um, and, and, you know, we kind of streamlined the story. So instead of, you know, I think 400 pages, this is about 250 pages. And instead of, you know, five to 600 footnotes, I think we have about a 120 footnotes. And, but, you know, the two books together, I, I kind of figure like, okay, if you're a general reader, um, Plague of Corruption is your book, uh, probably the best one to go to first. Um, if you're a science wonk um, or you want more, uh, go to plague and, and you know all of your questions will be answered and, and much more thoroughly than in a Snopes or Wikipedia article. <laughs> you know I've heard you refer to yourself as the Scott Adams of science writers. First of all who is Scott Adams and what does so, this mean? So, so, so Scott Adams is one of my favorite public intellectuals. Uh, most people kind of know him as the creator of Dilbert comic strip Oh, and, yes. And, he, and he's really kind of become an expert in persuasion and messaging. Mm. And, and, you know, it, it's kind of great because I, I think his 
his talent stack is he said he's he's an expert at detecting bullshit. Okay, he, he's an expert at detecting lies, and you know he'll he'll say you know I I may not know the facts of everything, but I can tell when people are lying because there are certain things that they do, and he, he's got a really fun engaging style that I really like, and and you know when when he doesn't know something he'll say hey I don't know it. Um, but you know he'll ask provocative questions, and, and I, I like that. And so um, it, it's it's kind of interesting because I you know when when you're trying to get into the public eye, you have certain figures that you look up to, and Scott Adams is certainly somebody I look up to. And uh, you know he one of the things that he also says is uh, never stay in your lane. So um, you know if you have a certain talent stack, let's see if you can move it to another field. So. You know, I was an attorney for many years and I wanted to become a science teacher and I did. And then I wanted to go from science teacher to science writer and I did. And, you know, uh, you, you just keep keep moving on, keep, um, keep building your skills. And so, you know, I, I really kind of love how Scott Adams is a fun, provocative thinker. And, uh, you know, sometimes he makes people really mad and other times he really changes the, dot, the, um, the conversation on many important topics. So, you know, just somebody I really look up to and admire. You know, I interviewed Dr. Judy a couple of weeks ago, and I'm seeing all kinds of misinformation come out about her stance with vaccines. Could you clarify that for us? She's not an anti-vaxxer, am I correct in, in assuming that? Well, here's the thing. Um, when, when Judy explains it, she talks about immunotherapies. Yes. Okay? So let's talk about what immunotherapies are. Immunotherapies are ways that you can um, improve the functioning of the immune system, okay? So I, I think that she gets a little bit um, sideways when people say like, oh, you're anti-vaccine, because from her standpoint, any immunotherapy is technically a vaccine um, because you're trying to train the immune system. So, you know, she talks a lot about her research in cancer. So one of the best therapies in cancer is immunotherapy, ways that we can train the immune system to go after cancer. And that's really important. Um, a lot of those are medications and drugs, okay? Um, what she has some concerns about is she has some concerns about the use of animal tissue and an aborted human fetal tissue in creating biological products. So um, something for, viewers to understand and this is you know I kind, I kind of say you know in five minutes I can turn everybody into an anti-vaxxer um, when I, you just understand this process okay the human genome is about seven percent silenced viruses we have to assume that animal tissue is probably roughly the same when you take that animal tissue out of the body and you you put it in a petri dish the immune system is not suppressing those viruses so it's very likely that in the attempt to gentle one crazy virus, what you're doing is you're allowing all of these other viruses that are in the tissue to express themselves. Once they express themselves, then they can recombine into new pathogens. And I think that that's really kind of my contribution to Dr. Judy's story is she found this mouse retrovirus in human beings and so, you know, as an attorney, as a science teacher, as, you know, attorneys learn like, okay, you know, get me to the scene of the crime. Where did the crime happen? And so 
you know, I'd said to her, how did this, um, how did this mouse virus get into human beings? I mean, human beings and mice have shared the planet for millions of years. There's, there's no reason we should have, you know, mouse virus causing trouble in people. If we've been exposed to it, well, our bodies should have adapted. And so uh, she said, I don't know. So I said, well, let me go look in. And I found out that pretty much everybody in chronic fatigue syndrome agrees that the first outbreak of chronic fatigue syndrome happened in 1934 and 1935 among 198 doctors and nurses at Los Angeles County Hospital during a polio epidemic. And so that was kind of curious because you'd expect if there was a new disease to break out, it wouldn't break out among the medical staff. It would break out among the patients who were immunocompromised by polio, right? Yes, yes. Um, and so I did a little bit of digging and I found out that those doctors and nurses received an early polio vaccine. Makes sense, right? They're caring for polio sure, patients sure. who want to protect the healthcare workers. But that vaccine was one of the first that was grown in mouse brain tissue. Mm. Okay? So... Um, very interesting. And also that they were given an immune booster um, because they understood. I actually think their understanding of immunology was a little bit better than ours uh, because they understood, well, if you're challenging the body, let's do something to strengthen it. Um, that immune system booster was preserved in thimerosal, which is a mercury derivative and something that a lot of um, autism advocates have had on their you know, radar screen for a while. So here I am at the first outbreak of chronic fatigue syndrome. And I've got a vaccine that's grown in mouse tissue and I've got, you know, mercury on the scene. It was also kind of interesting because um, this is about the first time uh, around the 1934, 1935 time period is the time when the first children with autism were born. Okay. Oh, I didn't realize it. So and, we're, oh my and, gosh. And, and there's always been a curious thing about those first uh, cases of autism that were um, described by a guy named Leo Kanner at the Johns Hopkins University. And so what he made the observation of was that, wow, these kids with autism seem to have highly educated parents. And so, and there was also an interesting cluster uh, in those first couple of patients that their parents were tropical disease researchers. So in my research, what I found is that this polio vaccine that was given to the medical staff at Los Angeles County Hospital um, was also given to 8,000 children. So you assume who would those have been? Those would have been medical researchers. And mouse brain tissue was also used in a yellow fever vaccine. So you find yourself going like, oh, okay. So if you're the child of a medical researcher who's studying tropical diseases, you'd probably get a yellow fever vaccine. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I, and you know, here I am, you know, I, I'm an attorney. I, I feel like I, I have a nice logical way of thinking, but you know, then I present this to Dr. Mikevitz and I say, Hey Judy, what do you think about this? Am, am I on the right trail? Tell, tell me I'm right. Tell me I'm wrong. And she was like, God damn it. This, <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. You know, fast forward to 2011, and a guy named Ben Burkout in the, the journal Frontiers of Microbiology uh, comes out with an article, and he says relatively the same thing. He says the most likely vector for these um, viruses to have jumped to humans would have been vaccines, and and uh, particularly vaccines against viruses. So, um, you know, and, and it also in my research, 
I found out in the 1950s uh, that there were presentations to the World Health Organization looking at just this possibility. You know, if we're using mouse tissue, uh, what's the likelihood that there's going to be a virus that's latent in the mice, but pathogenic when you transfer it to human beings? What's the likelihood that this virus um, may cause, you know, inflammation throughout the neurological system? And so, you know, here I am, I'm, I'm just going to the science, I'm going to the research, and I'm asking the questions. Um, and then this, this led to another question, because... Um, some of your viewers may know about the controversy over SV40, simian virus 40, yes. which contaminated 98 million doses of the polio vaccine uh, in the late 1950s, I believe. And I find myself saying, okay, so we got a mouse virus contaminating the vaccines. You know, it's a common laboratory animal. Um, we got a monkey virus contaminating the vaccines. Um, and I said, Judy, I just got to ask this question. Is it ever a good idea to mix animal and human tissue together in the lab, then take the product of that and inject it into a human being? Don't you always have the risk that some sort of pathogen is going to either be created or recombine or something that in the animal, it does nothing, but when it's put into human beings, it's gonna do something, because you have biological material coming back in that syringe. And, and you know, Judy, to her credit, you know, went and asked around, and she talked to her, her, her longtime collaborator, Dr. Frank Grusetti, who's one of the um, founding fathers of human retrobiology, and he, he said, you know, I asked that question when I was a very young researcher, and the answer that came back to me was, no, the human immune system is superior to any viruses it may encounter coming back in that syringe. Uh, and, and so, you know, I found myself saying like, well, that's an awful thin read of hope to hang an entire medical program on. So, um, you know, it, but so I have this criticism, but I also have an answer. And so one of the things that is very clear is we have developed amazing technological tools to research things, to research viruses. I mean, we have these viral chips that you can, you know, uh, it'll identify any known virus um, sequence. And so, you know, I asked the question, couldn't we simply, um, you know, take all the vaccines and test them to see what animal viruses are there? So. I'm offering a solution, you know, as a science teacher, I'm trained to come up with testable questions. It's a very testable question. Um, and I, I think it would, um, I, I really think it would, would blow the whole vaccine program out of the water. So if you call me an anti-vaxxer, well, you know, I, I, I got a, an answer for that. And um, I, I think that, uh, you know, maybe this is not something we should be doing. You know, maybe the mixing of animal tissue and aborted human fetal tissue is just a bad biological idea. You know, I'm not gonna get on the, abort, you know, on the abortion question um, on a, from a moral perspective, but from a scientific question, um, the question also is when you have retroviruses, they do something, they use an enzyme called reverse transcriptase. And reverse transcriptase opens up the, uh, uh, the genetic code so viruses can get, can integrate into it. And so I find myself saying, 
oh, if there's any retroviruses in there, suddenly all this animal tissue, uh, these animal genes are getting into our genetic code. Maybe they're causing cancer. Maybe they're causing lots of other neurological diseases. We just, we don't know. And um, so, um, you know, call me an anti-vaxxer, but I've got, oh. a, I've got, a, I've got a position I, I, and I've got, a, I've got a way to test me. So, hey, I, I, I'm happy to put it to the test, um, but I, I think that this big question, I, I think that this is the, in, in, in screenwriter talk, they always talk about the MacGuffin, the thing that everybody's after. I think the thing that nobody wants to talk about is this mixing of animal and human tissue in labs and how we're, you know, creating these, you know, viral monsters. So then it begs the question, is there such a thing as a healthy vaccine? Well, see, and I think this is where Dr. Mikevitz talks about, there are things we can do to monitor the immune system. There are things we can do to train the immune system. There's many medications that we can use. But, and, and her concern is that in things like cancer, when they give immunotherapy drugs, well, what they're doing is they're monitoring the response of the immune system. You know, you're getting tested on a regular basis. And, and her concern about vaccination is it's, it's this huge immunotherapy um, experiment and there's, there's no studies on what's going on. So then I have another question. Sure. You're a lawyer. Yeah. Then what is your professional opinion about the natural, I think it's called the National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act? Probably the worst court system ever devised. So let's talk a little bit about that. So it was passed in 1986 um, because vaccines have been harming so many kids. In fact, the companies were saying that the potential liability from the DTP, I always get that mixed up, DTP, DPP, um, the vaccine was causing, uh, they were looking at liability, which was a hundred times greater than their sales of the medication. Well, their answer was to pass this law, taking all liability away from the, the uh, pharmaceutical companies and putting it on the United States government. So if you are a parent who's alleging a vaccine injury, then you are facing not corporate lawyers from big pharma, you are facing lawyers from the Department of Justice. And the rules of the court are absolutely insane. Uh, so in a normal products liability case, um, what you can do is you sue the company and you say, produce all the documents relevant to my request about injuries from this product, and the company has to do it. Now, yeah, they'll fight you on it and everything, but eventually they have to do it. There's no such right in vaccine court, okay? so you have to petition the court to get any documents from Big Pharma, from the companies that made it, and they're under no obligation to give it to you. So suddenly you can't get documents. Um, the other thing that's terrible is, you know, in law, there's something called precedent. So for example, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Um, has been suing Monsanto for its Roundup um, weed killer. So he recently run, won a $2.2 billion settlement against Monsanto for them causing um, lymphoma in a, um, uh, in a man in California from, I think from Vallejo, he's a greenskeeper um, who used it in the course of his job. Well, everybody in the world knows about that case now um, and they can rely on that case 
as precedent for saying, okay, look, we, you know, court has determined that in this instance, Roundup caused this man's lymphoma. No such right exists in vaccine court. Um, so that means that if I go in there and I say, look, vaccines caused my daughter's encephalitis, one of the, you know, damages from that encephalitis is she has autism and I win, let's say, um, you know, Hannah Poling, for example, won over $20 million on that theory. Well, you go before the same judge and you say the same case and that, that judge will give you fish eyes and say, oh, I've never heard of anything like that. And you can't even say, hey, but judge, last week you just gave some kid $20 million for that. So it's a terrible system. And, you know, this is where I say, look, I, I am somebody who questions the safety of vaccines. Other people will say, no, they're totally safe. Okay, let's see if we can have something we agree on. So if I think they're unsafe and you think they're safe, totally safe, how about we just get rid of this crazy court and have vaccines, you know, subject to the same legal liability as you do a car seat, you know? So if you think they're safe, hey, this isn't gonna hurt the industry. I think it's unsafe. I think it's gonna devastate the industry. I think it's, it, things will dramatically change. So um, there's a lot of fear around the anti-vaxxer label. And, and I've just decided, I, I'm sorry, I'm gonna embrace it. Now, are there patents on vaccines, I, I, I believe? Who, do you know who owns most of them? Well, <laughs> the CDC owns a lot of them. Um, and you know, and some, isn't that a conflict of interest? I, I think it's, you know, the, the, the training you get as an attorney is that you have to have an independent person who has no interest in the outcome of it. So that means if, hey, if I'm suspected of killing somebody, I'm not going to lead the investigation. Um, I, I find it troubling that the CDC, which owns patents, will investigate the safety of it. I find it troubling that People like um, Dr. Paul Offit, who is an inventor of a vaccine, is going out and defending it in public. And, you know, he, he has a right to do that, but it doesn't seem like they say, well, you are, you know, benefiting from this. Um, I actually kind of have a funny story I want to talk about. And it gets back to my idea of like, hey, I think that there are ways we can test what I'm saying. All right. And, you know, um, I'll, I'll, I'll listen to the test results. So, um, Back in, I think, about 2012, 2013, as being a science teacher, I got the opportunity to spend a summer at Lawrence Livermore Labs working in a virus lab, okay, with about, you know, at, and at the whole laboratory, so maybe 30 or 40 science teachers. And so one day they bring us all into the auditorium because they want to do the big song and dance about how great Lawrence Livermore Labs is. And they're talking about the wonderful things they're doing with you know, fusion energy and this and that. And at one point, the, um, the presenter, a guy named Dr. Paul Jackson, who's a, a very well-known scientist there, he says, and we have a new viral detection chip and we tested that on the typical Rotatech vaccine. I know that's the one made by Dr. Paul Offit. Anybody can put this information in there. The scientist who did it, the research was named Crystal Jang, J-I-A-N-G. And, uh, he goes, and using our new viral detection chip, we detected an unsuspected pig virus in that vaccine. Mm -hmm. And we got it pulled from the market for a couple of weeks as we did some more testing. 
And so, you know, it, suddenly my ears go up. And so, you know, stupid little me, I, I raised my hand. I go, excuse me, Dr. Jackson, I, I'm just curious about this pig virus that you weren't expecting in the Rotatech vaccine. Could you tell me how much more pig virus there was than the target virus that you hoped was in the vaccine? And he goes, well, we estimated that there was about 10 times more pig virus oh my gosh then the target virus and and i think he wanted to move on and you know I, I raised my hand again and i said excuse me um as i understand it uh it's suspected that long-term uh, viral infection will exhaust the immune system leading to cancer were you able to make any determination whether this pig virus might be leading to cancers in people and he goes yeah, that, that's probably something that we should figure out. But uh, oh my God. And I thought to myself, you know, I think he really wanted to move on because, you know, here's the, the, the stupid science teacher asking the question that, you know, is blatantly obvious. Um, and, and, you know, it was just stunning to me because I, I, and I almost kind of got the feeling that he was saying, sorry, kid, that's above my pay grade. You know, I may want to do that, but I can't tell you I want to do that. Mm. So, um, you know, I, I think science, I think good scientists are being throttled. And, you know, these jokers that we have appearing in front of the public, they, they just, you know, spark the, spout the party line. And, and it's just, it's, it's, it's troubling to those of us who really love science. And, and you know, science doesn't care about the almighty dollar. Scientists care, science cares about the truth, about finding out what's really going on. And, you know, understanding these biological processes, which, you know, are mysterious and, and difficult to ascertain. You talk about something in the book that I'm anxious to discuss, and that is the old boys club of science. Can you just expand on that concept a little bit? I mean, who would you identify in that group? And do we have any hope that any of these individuals will be replaced sometime soon? Well, and you know, this is where I say, and I think that I really add something to Dr. Mikevitz because, you know, she knows these people personally. She's had run-ins with them. So I, I think sometimes that, you know, that feeling will, will come up. And, and I, as an attorney, I look at, it, look at it as more of a systems problem. So let's take Tony Fauci, for example. Tony Fauci is 79 years old, Okay. I know he doesn't look at it. He looks pretty good. Um, he's been in charge of his agency since 1984. That's almost as long as Hoover ran the FBI. And we all know how corrupt Hoover's FBI was. Mm. So it's not anything personal against Tony Fauci. It's, it's, it's an attack against this system. I think it is inevitable that if you let people be in charge for a long period of time, they will be corrupt. And, you know, Tony Fauci has been there since the 80s. I mean, he was there standing next to Ronald Reagan when Reagan signed the National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act, which removed liability from the pharmaceutical companies. Francis Collins has been there forever. Robert Redfield has been there forever. He's an old Gallo protege. So, you know, why are these people sticking around for so long and running their agencies? And what, what I really kind of say is, 
And I, I don't think this is really widely understood because I think when people look at, you know, the scientists and the politicians, they think they're just one. But I really believe that there's a scientific elite that exists above presidents and prime ministers, and they rarely tell their leaders what they're really doing in their labs. So as there's so much discussion about whether this virus came from, the COVID-19 virus came from the Wuhan lab, I think it's just as likely that the president of China had absolutely no idea what they were really doing in that lab. I, I think it's likely that the Chinese scientists lied to him. You know, the fact that Francis Collins uh, agency sent $3.7 million over to the Wuhan lab to study coronaviruses and see how they could, quote, gain function um, it is all troubling. And I, I, I just don't think it's, it's really understood that there is this scientific elite that goes across national boundaries and they just think they don't need to tell us the whole story about what they're really doing in their labs. And, and so, you know, here I am, a stupid little science teacher, and I'm, you know, going through the documents and trying to put them together in a, you know, um, I don't want to say an entertaining narrative, but something that people can follow to, to really raise some very important questions. So in closing, Ken, do you really think that people like Dr. Judy and yourself will be able to get more exposure for, for your public voice and views? Uh, you know, what is really remarkable is the fact that, you know, we're in the middle of a worldwide shutdown because of this virus that I believe escaped from a lab in Wuhan, China. Um, but I, I think it also probably got a bit of an assist from the United States. Um, and suddenly, people are understanding that science is important. I mean, it's been remarkable to me for three days now, we have been the number one book in all of Amazon. Mm. Um, so, you know, for, for, for a couple hours there, we were, we were battling the teen vampires in the next <laughs> edition of the Twilight Saga. But we finally, we finally beat those wimpy teen vampires. Um, but I, I think it's because people understand that something profound is happening. Um, you know, our freedoms are being taken away. Yes. Uh, don't understand why. Um, you know, and, and when I see Francis Collins, or when I see Tony Fauci, you know, whose agency sent $3.7 million to Wuhan to study the, this virus, when that research, gain-of-function research, was prohibited in the United States, I just kind of find myself saying, you know, they're like arsonists who've set the world on fire with their dangerous experiments, and now they want to control the fire trucks. So... And, so Gain of function, just explain that to some of my listeners. Well, well gain of function. So the, corona, the bat coronaviruses are interesting because they live in bats, right? Okay. Um, but the, bat, the bats are really interesting because since they have such a high metabolism, what that means is their viral, strat, viral their immune system is great for fighting viruses. So if you have a high metabolism hey, and you get a virus, wow, your, your immune system attacks it immediately. And the bat coronaviruses are not able to infect humans, okay? 
They don't have the right receptors. So um, one of the things gain of function research says, hey, how can we change viruses? And the answer, simple answer, same thing they do with vaccines, um, we run them through another animal species. So a number of people have said, wow, it seems like there are sequences from a monkey in this coronavirus. Okay, well, one of the things they were experimenting on was, oh, let's passage this coronavirus through monkey tissues. Well, you know, then, you know, viruses from monkeys can infect human beings. So you've got that. So, um, and what really struck me as um, disingenuous in some of the early coverage, which made me very suspicious, is that they were presenting us with only two ideas. Was this a bioweapon from China? Or was this natural? We don't yes. know, came from a seafood market. Yes, and I yes. found myself going, you know, you're kind of giving me a false choice. How about choice number three? Uh, they weren't creating a nefarious bioweapon. How about they were experimenting with stuff that was dangerous and it got out? Can we at least put that on the list? So, um, so gain of function research means basically, hey, how can we take this virus that ain't doing anything now and, and create something more dangerous? So I, I think that this is, is a discussion that the world is open to hearing now. And you know, the fact that people like Judy and Dr. Mike, Dr. Um, Wakefield have been you know, driven and exiled from science in the name of keeping us all safe well, you drove these voices from science, and are we any safer? No, we're, we're more vulnerable than we've ever been. We've never had a global shutdown like this. So we think that there's a direct correlation between the persecution of scientists like Dr. Wakefield and Dr. Mikevitz and what we're experiencing. We need our dissidents in science. Mm -hmm. We need to listen to them. And, you know, let the chips fall where they may. Like I said, yes, I'm an anti-vaxxer, 100%. I believe the mixing of animal tissue and aborted human fetal tissue is one of the worst ideas in all of humanity. I'm willing to put it to the test. I'm, hey, take a viral chip, take the 16 or 18 vaccines that are on the schedule, put them on a viral chip, tell me everything that's in that vaccine. I think you're going to find a lot of viruses that nobody ever knew were there. What's on the horizon? Is there another book in the offing? Oh, you betcha. My publisher is going nuts about that. And by the way, you have a terrific publicist. Hector got back to me very, very quickly. He said you'd be a wonderful interview, and, and indeed you are. You, you really, really compliment Dr. Judy beautifully, so I'm hopeful that you're going to be part of her series that is going to be coming out shortly. Hector is the best. And yes, Judy and I will be working together again. Wonderful. So let me thank you so much, Kent, for being my guest today. Everybody, this is another episode of the First Lady of Nutrition podcast. If you have any comments or questions, just post them in the, the comment section. And we'll see you next time. Be well, be safe, be healthy. Thank you so much.